Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. Now, if you want to contact us, our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz and biz is spelt B-I-Z. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not change your views prior to listening to an episode. So please enjoy today's guest as we welcome a gentleman who is the editorial director of Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. He's also a church elder and Twitter account says he likes silliness, so he should be right at home here. So why did he want to be a journalist? How does he edit a magazine? How can he make sure he gets the stories the audience needs to read? Even it might be more than challenging. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity today, Sam Hales. Sam, thank you for joining us. Where are we speaking to you from, sir? Thank you so much, Martin. It's wonderful to be here. I am currently in South London, where I live with my wife and daughter. Ah, so you're not in the office then? No. Well, COVID really changed that for us. I used to be office-based, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And now I edit magazines and broadcast on the radio from my bedroom, believe it or not. And I do go into the office occasionally, but most of the time I'm working from home. It's brilliant, isn't it, that so many good things have come out of COVID if we ignore what happened prior to COVID and then obviously the negative things from COVID as well. There are some good things that's come out of that, so that's really good. Absolutely. And it's the time with family, isn't it, that a lot of a lot of people, including myself, have really valued, especially with a with a young daughter who's just about to turn three, you know, to be around and see her growing up. And as much as I enjoy coffee breaks in the office chatting to colleagues, you can't quite beat a coffee break chatting to your three-year-old, can you? So I get to do that when I work from home. Especially when she then tells you off or something. <laughs> <laughs> and you might think, oh, maybe I should go back to the office. Well, there you go. Now we know what you do in your bedroom. Uh, it reminds me of a good friend to the show, Noel Richards, who tells us that, you know, his were very well-known hymns and choruses. They were written in the early days in his bedroom as well. So let's go to the first five questions, if that's OK, Sam. Question number one, if you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? This is surprisingly difficult for me. I guess one of the the privileges of of the job that I do is I do get to interview a lot of uh, alive people, not any dead people yet, but but alive people. Um, and in the Christian world, I've had the privilege of of interviewing and meeting pretty much everyone I would want to meet and interview. Yeah, so yeah. I, I thought I should go with someone dead, really, because this is hypothetical, isn't it? But yeah. the problem with that is, you know, I was thinking someone like Martin Luther or Spurgeon, one of these great heroes of old. But then as soon as I thought about it, I thought, well, there might be a bit of a language barrier, Martin Luther. And then even with with Spurgeon, you know, how would that work? Trying to have a conversation with someone who lived so many... Uh, so many years ago, so much has changed, culture has changed. Would they have the same reference points today as me? I mean, neither of those two people would even know what the internet is. You'd be starting <laughs> from scratch, wouldn't you? Yeah. So I, I think there'd be so much that'd be lost in translation because so much has changed in those those you know, hundreds of years. So I, I find this surprisingly hard to answer. Who's wow. yours, Martin? Very good question. I'll come back to that in a minute. Have you, have you got an answer? I don't think I do. I think I've just waffled <laughs> and bored everyone, unfortunately. <laughs> Actually, no, people have chosen Martin Luther in the past. Yes, and I know what you say about the language barrier, but then I'm assuming here that if we can talk to people from the past and bring them up to date, <laughs> you know, the, the language thing, you know, we could put the Babel fish in our ear or something like that, if you know your Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, I mean, with Martin with Martin Luther, maybe I'd end up just having an argument with him. Um, because although, you know, he, he was very inspiring in terms of rediscovering those those great doctrines of salvation by grace and faith and all the rest of it, he was also incredibly anti-Semitic, wasn't he? Yeah, so I think was. I'd probably end up having a bit of an argument with him. But maybe that's OK. Maybe a bit of an argument over the dinner table is allowed. I don't know. Yes, I would like to speak to Martin Luther as well, because I have it on good authority. His wife had the license to make beer in the village. And so consequently, it's assumed that she would sell beer to passers-by in villages and that would fund his ministry. So I'd like to know how much of that is true as well. In answer to your question to me, Anne Whittacombe, we had on a couple of months ago and she was very forthright and she was brilliant. And I think she chose Charles II, actually. And then I said, oh, well, if it was me, I'd have Winston Churchill. And you could just imagine Anne Whittacombe saying, no, no, you can't have him. Everything we know about him is out there now. I said, well, everything, you know, I'd like to ask him certain questions. She said, no, 95, 97% of everything about Winston Churchill is out there. You don't need to speak to him. So I thought, okay, Anne, I won't. So that was going to be my answer. George Muller, he's my all-time Christian hero. So maybe George Muller. 
But I like old Charles Haddon Spurgeon as well. Sit down with him, have a chat. That would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, especially for me, uh, living living in London, not a million miles away from where Spurgeon ministered. In fact, I'm quite near his college as well, Spurgeon's College, just down the road. And you just think, you know, that was a, a bit of a, a revival that he presided over in London. You know, biggest biggest church in London at the time, thousands of people flocking to hear him preach. So he'd surely have some have some wisdom to offer us. The spiritual climate of London has changed beyond all recognition since those days. You'd, you'd love to know what he yes. would make of it and what his proposed solution might be. Maybe I'd like to have Beethoven, I think, more I think about it now. But I'd like to take him to a gig, which leads on to another question that I've asked the other people. If you have Beethoven, what gig would you want to take him to? To about some other time, maybe. Question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable? Well, it's interesting because I grew up in a Christian family, had the kind of typical Sunday school education and really had a very positive experience of faith as, as a child. When I look back on Sunday school education, both then and now, I do wonder if we've gone a slightly wrong as a church. You know, the, the, the way I remember being taught Sunday school was look at this great hero from the Old Testament. Look at David. Look at the faith he had. He mm. defeated Goliath. Isn't he great? Be more like David. And as I've got older and I guess, become more interested in theology. I just wonder if that needs flipping on its head a little bit, because actually when I read the Bible now, all I see is flawed characters. And I only see one hero. You know, the only hero in the, in the Bible is Jesus. All of the rest of them messed up. Um, so yes, David defeated Goliath, but also look at what happened with Bathsheba. And, and, and you read that story now in the light of the Me Too movement and everything else. And you think, actually, this was a man who really seriously messed up. Or, or look at Moses. We talk yeah. a lot about Moses leading the people into out of Egypt, but actually he never he never made it into the promised land because he disobeyed God. So I, I'm not saying we can't draw good positive life lessons from these characters, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is the only hero of scripture is Jesus. And I find some comfort in that, in that we're all flawed human beings, but the story of the Bible for me is that God loves us anyway, and he's not actually expecting or demanding perfection because he knows that's not possible. And even these people in scripture who we tend to hold up as heroes weren't as heroic as sometimes we think. Another good answer, can I say. If you mention other people from the Bible who are flawed, can I throw into that mix Jonah? Because I think, you know, I just have this picture of Jonah sitting under the tree, having gone to Nineveh, totally fed up. And I go, I get that. Totally disillusioned. I get that, Jonah. I see yeah. where you come in. You then want the rest of the story to develop from there, but it doesn't. It's a cutoff point. And I go, oh. Where's the sequel? Yeah. Where's the sequel? I love those cliffhangers. There's a few of them in scripture, isn't there? Jonah is definitely a cliffhanger. The other one is the prodigal son, which which ends on this cliffhanger of the older brother um, having the conversation with the father, basically being jealous that the prodigal's been welcomed home and the fattened calf has been killed. And uh, and the father saying, you know, don't effectively don't be jealous. And it stops. We don't know what the what the older brother's reply was, if anything. And there's there's fascinating moments like that in scripture where we don't quite get the whole story. And, and I love that because it's such a conversation starter. Yeah, it is. You can then go from there and think, well, what would happen next? Or even place yourself in the story. Which character am I in the prodigal son? Um, and how do I relate to people? I think is, there's so much to unpack there. Well, I often ask this question, so I'm going to ask it to you as well when the story of uh, the prodigal son comes up. Who was the most disappointed to see the prodigal son return? Who was the most disappointed to see the prodigal son return? I don't know. The fatted calf. <laughs> Moving on. Brilliant. <laughs> there I was. There I was searching around for some deep theological answer, um, thinking, oh, this is embarrassing. I don't, I don't know the story as well as I thought I did. And it was a joke that I totally missed. Very good, Martin. You Thank you. There. Thank you. Well, you did say you like silliness. So there you go. Question three. If you were prime minister for the day and could change any law or impose new law, what would it be, good sir? Oh, that's easy. Fix all the potholes in the country, please. I don't know if this is a recent thing. I've just noticed it in the last few months. Everywhere I go, everywhere I go, there are potholes. Now, I appreciate this is not the biggest issue facing the UK right now. But let me tell you, I drive a little Nissan Micra and I am feeling it. Every time I go over <laughs> one of those potholes, it's wrecking my car. Uh, it's very uncomfortable ride. And I just think in a modern civilised society, can we not have a decent standard of road, please? Surely. It's me, Martin, or is this problem just... It's got, wor it's got worse in recent years, hasn't it? I just feel like everywhere I go... This it's a great subject. If I was an MP... Oh, no, you look at statistics. You know, if you've had the privilege, like I have, of going over to America, actually, you think the American roads are great. They're not. 
But yes, potholes are a big dilemma. And uh, I like the story of, uh, is it uh, an old age pensioner recently went and filled in his own pothole because he was like so fed up with what was going on. And he still got a rebuke for it. <laughs> People going, well done, well done. But there's a pothole in Coleraine in Northern Ireland. It's been there for 20 years. It's now big enough for you to put a bath in it. That's how big it is. Wow. They cannot fix it. Why? Because the landowner says, oh, no, no, no. This is council, you know, whereas council say, no, no, no. This is the landowner. Who's going to fix it? Nobody. In fact, I uh, had to do a quiz. Oh, this is about five, six years ago now uh, at the rugby club. And I thought I'd do a picture quiz all about cold rain. And one of them was of the pothole. And everybody got it. So, yes, good answer. Good answer. Question four. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please, sir? I've had I've had loads, loads and loads and loads and loads. But can I take you back to one from my teenage years? Yeah. When I was when I was about 16, 17, this was the best day out ever. So I, I grew up in Eastbourne. I got up at stupid o'clock, probably about 4 a.m., got on a coach with a load of other friends, drove all the way up to Alton Towers had the entire day going around Alton Towers doing all of the theme parks. And then that evening was the most amazing concert gig. Thousands of young people at Alton Towers. And I think Delirious were playing and other kind of Christian bands. I think Toby Mack came over from America, had the most amazing band. Now, you know, when you're, when you're 16, 17, 18, it doesn't get much better than that with all your friends, theme park, and then some amazing music. Days out like that, they're pretty special. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think I was at that one, but I've been to them before. I think it was called the ultimate event, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. This is ancient. This is ancient history now, I admit, <laughs> but um, it had a big impact on me and my teens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, DC Talk actually came over. Mentioned Toby Mac. DC Talk came over and did a, an Alliance Music Day at um, Manchester Arena. That was quite good to see them as well. Sitting next to a very young Daniel Beddingfield. Oh, wow, yeah. Look what happened to him. Indeed, mm. yeah. I always remember him hitting me. Go on, mine, mine, mine. And kept hitting me. This is brilliant. Oh, got to do this. And then he hit my wife, Alison. My It's like, she's not at all well, Daniel, but <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Question five then, good sir. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Gosh, which one? Which one to tell you about? Do I want to tell you about any of them? I mean, this is quite personal. <laughs> um... I mean, there was the time I was working as a, I mean, freelance journalist, but that's it was quite a broad term, if I'm honest, freelance media type stuff and accidentally told the CEO of a company because I didn't realize who he was. I thought he was just some random person, but accidentally named his company that I didn't know was his company and said, oh, yeah, because, you know, people at this company, they've said their website isn't isn't any good. So they brought me on to to fix it. Um, had no idea who I was speaking to. And then as I walked away, was told, you do realise he's the CEO of the company you just mentioned. And of course, there was nothing I could do. It's not like I could go back and try and explain myself. I mean, it was true. I had been told that. But um, if I'd known who he was, I wouldn't quite put it the way I did. But there you go. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the information got to him somehow. <laughs> it did. Yeah, it did. Generally, putting putting foot in mouth can, can happen to me, as I, as I suppose it can happen to most people. Oh, yeah. I do think it's partly a personality thing. I mean, working in journalism, as you know, Martin, a lot of our job is to cut to the chase and, and put things simply and sometimes bluntly. And when that's your kind of personality, it does lend yourself sometimes to perhaps not being quite as emotionally intelligent as we should be and just a, a little bit too direct uh, and not diplomatic enough. But there's pros and cons, aren't there, to having a personality like that? Because I personally find it a bit annoying when people are overly diplomatic and don't get to the point. So there's probably a, <laughs> there's probably a happy medium and balance somewhere. Get on with it. Just get on with it. Just say what you mean. Yeah, okay. yeah I understand. Listen, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's find out more about yourself then, young Sam, if that's okay. You've already mentioned journalism. Why did you want to be a journalist in the first place? I have no idea. Um, all I know is is that I was terrible at maths and I was okay at English. Uh, and so when I did my A-levels, it did English language, did IT, I did religion at A-level. And all I can remember is, is coming to the end of my A-levels and, you know, should I, should I go to university? No one in my family had been before. I was not from a, an overly academic or intellectual background at all. But, you know, I knew the sort of trades, you know, building, painting, decorating, which mm. my dad does. I knew that wasn't me either. Uh, and so I don't actually remember my thought process, but but I did end up studying journalism at university. But it's so funny to this day, I could not tell you why, other than I kind of had a bit of a bit more of a skills in English than I would maths or science. But that's it. I'm afraid there's no um, no more exciting answer than that. Just uh, ended up falling into it, really. 
well, that's a good enough answer for me. But then Premier Christianity, how did you get involved with them? Yeah, well, I can remember way back when, even before I wanted before I studied journalism, before I knew I wanted to be a journalist, I'd read what was then Christianity magazine and really enjoyed it. So then when I went and did, did the degree, I can remember very early on somebody, well, us being taught really as a class, that a lot of people want to be journalists. And if you want to make it as a career, if you want to stand out, you need to have a bit of a niche. They recommended there was a niche where you uh, you knew a lot about a particular subject yeah. and you pursue that. So they, you can imagine a class, you know, most of the guys then said, oh, yeah, yeah, my niche will be music. And the other half of the, the group would say, yeah, mine should be sports. And then you think, yeah, but how many how many music magazines are there? At that point, maybe three. Um, how many sports places are there to write? Again, not many. I mean, for me, I you know I grew up in a Christian family and knew a little bit about the Christian world. And I mentioned I'm, I'm from Eastbourne and a lot of Christian music actually was based out of Eastbourne at that point. So I just I had friends with kind of connections in that world and, and had an interest in that world. So I suppose that the kind of, the world of Christianity and more broadly religion and faith and those sorts of topics kind of became my niche. And then after that, I, I freelanced for a number of different people before joining Premier Christianity first as a as just as a journalist and then later becoming deputy editor, then editor and now editorial director. So what's the history of Premier Christianity magazine and for those that have never heard of it? Good, sir. Yeah, it actually goes all the way back to 1965, would you believe it? Mm. Uh, a little magazine called Buzz Magazine. It's had various names down through the years. It was called 21st Century Christian at it one was. point. It was called Alpha at another point. When it became Christianity magazine, it was also then bought by Premier. Premier is a large media company, has radio stations, uh, most notably Premier Christian Radio. And um, it got rebranded as Premier Christianity, which is what we are now. But really throughout that long, long, long history... It's always been a, a publication that has tried to serve Christians in the UK across denominations. And that's really important for us is that people of any church background can pick it up and find something that's actually interesting and relevant. And I think as well, we've, we've tried not to take ourselves too seriously. I mean, if you go back through the archives, which I do occasionally all the way back to Buzz magazine, it was very kind of underground, up and coming, pushing the boundaries and um, we try and retain that as much as possible. We don't want to be overly overly serious while we do cover the big topics as well and we want it to be something that pick up that people pick up and actually enjoy reading and find entertaining as well as informing and, and educating as well yeah 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 i was going to ask you who you're aiming the pc at premier christianity publication but how can you make sure you get the stories the readers need to read even if it might be more challenging or even can I use the other c word controversial yeah absolutely i mean again they're the sorts of articles we quite deliberately do and I think the reason we're able to is because of our audience. You know, look, our, our audience are an amazing bunch of people. You know, these are people who are Christians, who are quite often committed to a local church, might even be a church leader, might be a street pastor, might help at the food bank, you know, pretty, pretty committed people to their local church. But what I love is these same readers, they pick up the magazine because they want to be exposed uh -huh. to what Christians of other churches are thinking. They want to be exposed even to what secular culture is thinking and how we as Christians can kind of speak into that and influence that. So I guess our, because our audience is so open-minded, they don't mind being challenged. Uh, and that enables us to, for example, do a front cover mm -hmm. story on the subject of psychedelic drugs a few months ago, um, <laughs> which, you know, perhaps most Christian magazines wouldn't dare go there, but we did. And that is because the audience lets us. So even on really big theological subjects dominating the church, you know, we go there and the audience has that trust with us because we've been going since 1965. They trust us to engage in those issues in a serious grown up way and to try and represent all parts of the UK church because there's lots of issues where good Christians disagree with each other and so we just provide a forum and, uh, and provide a platform where Christians of different beliefs can all have their say and, and what I love is that there is still a market for that that people still want that they want to break out of the echo chamber yeah, yeah. of just seeing stuff online they always agree with they like picking up a magazine where they could be exposed to almost any kind of different shade of Christian opinion and that's okay and they can still engage with that and what I tell people and not everyone understands this actually but what I like to tell people is I might be the editor of Premier Christianity, but there's plenty of stuff in pretty much every issue of the magazine that I personally disagree with. Uh, you know, for me, that makes it more interesting. If I just published the views I agreed with, we'd have to rebrand it Premier Sam Hale's magazine, <laughs> and it would have a readership of two. It would be me and my mum. Well, maybe not even your mum. You just don't know. Maybe not even yourself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case, what stories or subjects would you not want to touch? 
I'm not sure if there's anything massively off limits. I mean, unless it's just unhelpfully extreme. You know, I, I think the challenge is engaging with a, a hot topic, but doing it in a way that the kind of, if I can use this word, the mainstream of the mm -hmm. mainstream of the Christian faith could recognize. So, you know, you won't find us publishing something that says, oh, actually, Jesus wasn't really God or Jesus didn't really rise again. Like, we're not going to go there. Uh, we're also not going to publish, you know, racist material, for example. That's just unhelpfully extreme. But you will find us engaging with the topic of racism and you will find us engaging with the topic of what about people of other faiths who don't believe Jesus existed? How do we answer that question? OK. Theology. I was chatting to a friend of mine only yesterday. And I was telling about what my podcast is all about and uh, a certain issue that's come about as a result of one of the episodes. And he said, yes, theology is very important. So I'm going to ask you that. Is theology important? I think it is. and I, I think our readers would say it is. Some people like to make this distinction between theology and the kind of real world. And I understand that. And I, and I sympathize with that distinction. And what we don't want to do is become very ivory tower and debating what this verse says. And it and it not be practically outworked. And sometimes people like to pit theology against love. So you sometimes hear people say, oh, I don't really know about this theology stuff. I just love people. And I think what people forget is, yeah, but your decision to love people, that is a theological decision. So actually, why? Why do you believe that we should love everyone? Uh, well, because God is love. So, so there's always there's often a theological underpinning to things. So yes, theology matters because it influences our behavior and our practice. But I do agree that we need to be careful not to do theology in isolation as an ivory tower thing that doesn't have a real world connection. So you'll find, generally speaking, when we're discussing theology in the pages of Premier Christianity, there'll be some kind of practical real world applications to that. And it won't just be theology for theology's sake. But at the end of the day, you know, you are market driven because you need to get the pennies in from, from people buying the magazine. So then surely must be a boundary as to what you can or can't touch. Are you thinking of anything in particular? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just racking my brain for things that we wouldn't touch and why, really. I mean, I, you talk about being market-driven. I suppose, you know, there are there are decisions around that in terms of, I mean, one of the ones I'm very happy to talk about, which is which is very topical, is this, this accusation of kind of Christian celebrity culture. This idea that, you know, some people might say, should you even be putting a person on the front cover of the magazine? Is that buying into celebrity culture? So I think there are there are really interesting ethical questions around that. And what we've always tried to do is do that in a in a healthy way. You know, to, I'll use the example of Francis Chan. I think it's quite a good example of this. If you know anything about Francis Chan, he's an American Christian author, speaker. And what basically happens is Francis Chan has some really helpful things to say to the church and writes some really excellent books. And because these books are so good, he gets talked about quite a lot mm. and becomes, quote unquote, a bit of a Christian celebrity. And people like me then want to interview him because I'm like, wow, he's got great things to say that are really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Francis Chan then tends to run away quite literally. He, he moved his whole family from America to a part of Asia. And he, he said he did that because he was uncomfortable with how much of a celebrity he was becoming. But the problem, the problem is, is because he was trying to run away from celebrity culture, that just made Christians admire him even more. <laughs> and so there was even more of a demand to hear from him. Now, you know, at one point we interviewed Francis Chan and we put him on the front cover of Premier Christianity magazine. Now, are we then buying into and promoting celebrity culture? Well, no, I don't think we are, because I think what we're doing is we're recognizing someone who has actually really excellent things to say that are helpful. And we want to bring that to our audience. So there's always questions about how you do this and the best way of going about it. And there's always a certain sense which you can't avoid the fact that some people are known and some people aren't. No offense to you, Martin, but if I if I put your face on the front cover of, of Premier Christianity magazine, it's not going to sell as many copies as Francis Chan. I've just got to be honest about that and open about that. I don't know, actually, because <laughs> people might want to use it as a dartboard, you know, so you just don't know. <laughs> of, course there, of course there is a decision there in terms of... But I think I want to take it back to the fundamentals. At the end of the day, do I think there's stuff in this issue of the magazine that's genuinely going to help people, inspire people, and bless mm -hmm. the UK church? Yes, I do. Now, do I want people to read that? Yes or no? Of course I want people to read it. Therefore, I am going to present the front cover, you know, promote the latest offer or use this podcast, Martin, to tell you we're running a half-price offer right now at premierchristianity.com. And you can accuse me of all sorts of things of, oh, well, yes, this is all just, I, I, I don't know. But the point is, I believe in the product and that's the motivation. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's genuine because we want to be helpful and bless the church. No, I get that. The other side of this, uh, a friend of mine when I was working way back yonder in a, another radio station, Christian radio station, and uh, she, she joined us. 
and she was telling me how she'd been hauled over the coals. She'd been brought in, she was working for a Christian publication, and they were absolutely furious at her. You know, they've had a couple of complaints. Because she was like the sub-editor, on the front page, she'd put a picture of this lady on there, right? And how dare you put it on there? She's not a Christian and everything else like that. You know, we've had several complaints. You're going to be sacked or, well, maybe slight exaggeration, but they were fuming. So she then goes back downstairs, pulls out the editorial in question, and it was a very well-known Christian lady. So people complaining didn't even know who the person was. So, you know, you, you've got this Christian culture thing of, oh, celebrities going on there. Some people might not even know who it is. So I might get away with it if you put me on the cover. <laughs> there we go. We'll line up a photo shoot for next week. <laughs> take your time. Take your time. But talking of this, though, on your Twitter page, there's someone there, I think, called Shane. And he says, any Christian celebrity who isn't connected to a local church personally should not be influencing the church universally. Do you remember that quote? Yeah, that was one I retweeted, I think. Yeah. Yeah, what's that about then? I think it's this idea of of accountability and this idea of making sure your head doesn't get too big. You know, if you are going to be a Christian who has any kind of public profile, who's well known, it's just a really, really good idea to have people who just know you as Martin rather Mm -hmm. than know you as, oh, that amazing Christian broadcaster because it grounds you and it stops you believing your own hype and your own press. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, my best Christian friend is forever taking the mick out of me. And, oh, yeah, Sam Hells from Premier Christianity. Oh, yeah, you, you think you're some big cheese. And it's actually really helpful because he just brings me down a peg or two. And, you know, it, I, I basically can't impress this guy. I say, you know, Mark, I've interviewed so, And he'll just laugh at me and be like, oh, yeah, you think you're a big deal. And there's, there's something quite helpful about that, of just yes. friends around you in a church context who aren't going to be overawed by you and you know I'd, i'm applying that to myself in a very jokey fashion because i'm aware i'm not a, i'm not an a-lister or whatever but i think for those who are massive and there are you know you and i can think of the names martin there are people particularly in the u.s who are just huge you know have literally yes. millions and millions and millions of followers and there is an unhelpful culture around them and you have to ask yourself well how can those people stay grounded and one of the answers is don't spend your whole time touring the world and signing autographs, but actually stay in a local church where people know you for who you are, can bring you down a peg or two and keep you humble. That's one thing to say, of course, but as we hear from all the stories coming through at the moment, we've got well-known church leaders making the news for all the wrong reasons again. Yeah, Where's your stance on that, about talking about it, for instance? Well, yeah, we absolutely talk about it. So both online and print, you'll find articles this month, and we take no pleasure in reporting on these people and some of the things they've done, take no pleasure in it at all. But we do believe in the importance of truth as Christians. Mm -hmm. We do believe that some things need a light shining on them. And so, again, we try and do it responsibly and in a way that isn't sensationalized, but in a way that is that is full of truth. And, you know, Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. If you're a Christian, that you are making some kind of a truth claim. I believe all truth is God's truth. Got nothing to be afraid of from from the truth when it comes out. So, yeah, we will report on the good, the bad and the ugly. Of church, and of course, on a personal level, it's uh, it can be a bit dispiriting and discouraging when there is so much bad news around. Yes, but we just make make an effort as a magazine as well to to remember there are lots of good news stories. And I was having a conversation just this week with some colleagues to say, actually, the honest truth is we get sent a lot of bad news. If I just sit back at my computer and wait for stuff to come to me, or a lot of it will be bad. But what's really interesting is when you're a little bit more active and front-footed as a journalist and go out there and start meeting people and talking to people and experiencing real church, there's a lot of really good news stories. And I think it really is on us in the Christian media, the responsibility on us to make sure we are finding those good news stories and reporting those. But it's both and. It's not that we only report positive or we only report negative. We, we mm. make an effort, a very conscious decision to do both because I think both have their place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social media then? If you'd asked me 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, even five years ago, what would I like to do? I'd like to ban all social media, <laughs> go back to 17th century me sort of thing. Uh, but then obviously we wouldn't have the internet. We wouldn't be interviewing each other like this today. We'd have to use the old dog and bone, you know, or ISDN. That's something you wouldn't have known because that's, uh, that's before, before your time. Okay. So what is your relationship with social media? Well, I've more or less, I haven't quite grown up around it. I can remember a time pre-social media. I can remember having a MySpace page. I remember having a Bebo page in my teens. That dates me a little bit now. I can remember, I don't know if you remember this, with MySpace pages of learning that if you do open bracket, you close bracket, it underlines something. So, you know, I can remember like really early days of kind of HTML code messing around in MySpace. 
but really that's kind of early teens so if you look at it from the age of 12 13 onwards i've grown up with it and it's just a it's a normal normal part of life for the generation coming up underneath me they've only ever known the internet they, they can't even remember that time we can remember martin do you remember the dial-up internet of the oh yes Rrrk. and then wait <laughs> i remember that and how you'd have to wait for a family member to get off the phone before you could use the internet <laughs> My position on social media is is love-hate. I think the problem for me with Twitter in particular is you load it up and you have no idea what you're about to get. You could get something really funny, something really helpful, Mm -hmm. something really thought-provoking, or you could just get a stream of anger and outrage and hate and nastiness. And before you open the app, you just don't know what you're going to get. And for me as a journalist, you know, I would make the argument, some people might disagree, but I do think... It's an enormously helpful tool for journalists to see in real time what's going on. Now, it does have its drawbacks because there are, you know, you've got, to, you've got to try to remember, most people in the world are not on Twitter. And there are certain opinions that seem very popular on Twitter that in the real world are not. Mm-hmm. So you do have to balance it. But in terms of knowing what's going on in a news perspective, there's a lot of journalists on there, a lot of Christians on there. It's, it's a helpful place for me to be professionally, but I have to balance that with it's not always a helpful place to be personally. So I have a very love-hate relationship with it. I'm glad you say that because as far as I'm concerned, you know, I banned Twitter. I'd ban- <laughs> Even though Elon Musk would much probably try and buy me out of my ideas of, of, of banning Twitter because it seems that the people have just got this immediate response to say, hey, my votes are valid. I need to speak. And a lot of it is just complete yeah. twaddle. And yet it seems that the yeah. generally accepted media, the newspapers of the you know, times gone by, Whilst we used to, in the past, read them and think, oh, they were very good, it seems now they seem to go to what Twitter is saying, and all of a sudden it becomes fact. But the journalists in the well-known daily newspapers, for instance, they love lambasting Christianity. So where do you stand? How, how do they have a go at you, for instance? We at Premier, we, we did a survey very recently, and we asked Christians, do you trust the mainstream media to report fairly on Christianity? And, you know, the result. 94% of the Christians we surveyed said we do not trust the mainstream media to report accurately on Christian faith. And, you know, you can debate that one. Maybe they're wrong, maybe they're right. But isn't that fascinating that the perception is there? The perception amongst the vast majority of Christians is secular mainstream media doesn't report on us well. So I think we just take that as a bit of a challenge at Premier to say, OK, if the BBC or whoever aren't representing faith well, we need to make sure that mm. we are and provide a healthy alternative. And a healthy alternative is not about pretending that everything in the church is great, because it's not. A healthy alternative is just having that religious literacy to understand what some of these terms mean. You know, I would argue, for example, pull aside the average BBC journalist. They're not going to be able to define what a charismatic evangelical are, for example. My job is to serve that portion of of the church and have an understanding of who those people are, as much as I'd have an understanding of, of a progressive christian or someone who identifies that way or a catholic christian or or whatever so i suppose what i'm saying is we have that niche knowledge at premier that allows Mm -hmm. us to report on the church and on the issues that christians care about with some knowledge that sometimes the mainstream media don't have but i don't want to be overly critical of the mainstream media there's some amazing christian people working at the bbc and other places and also i'm aware that they have huge restraints on their time and if you are Mm. for example the science editor at the bbc then well why would you know what christians believe about i don't know evolution and the big bang or whatever it is so you know i I don't want to blame the secular media unfairly but i I think we can argue that there is a genuine appetite for news that understands religion well and that premier can play part of the picture in doing that as can podcasts like yours and all sorts of, of other media where actually it's about us as christians saying we have something to say and we can say it in our own way now without having to rely on some of the the kind of legacy media, yeah. which I think is the other point. And as much as there are problems with social media, it does give everyone a voice. Um, and in the past, in order to have that voice, you'd have to write into the Times newspaper and hope they published your letter. Whereas now you can immediately load up Twitter, find the journalist who wrote that article and write back to them and reply and say, you got this bit wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is that a good thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is for me. I I like having feedback. I mean, I'll be honest, I, no one likes critical feedback, do they? But I make a point of publishing in the magazine every month critical feedback. We have two pages of feedback in the mag. And some of that is people saying, Sam, you got this wrong. And I print that. Um, and, you know, I'll print feedback if it's critical and fair. I don't print feedback that's critical and unfair. But again, and I dialogue with people all the time online, I do find that a lot of people, including myself, 
are a lot nicer in person than they are on Twitter. So if you've only ever interacted with me on Twitter and think I'm a bit of an idiot, I promise you we'd get on a lot better if we had a beer or a coffee together. And, and I do think that's important to bear in mind because I've had the same experience with people. I've just not gelled with them online. I've had a particular picture of them and it's just through Twitter. And then I meet them in person. I'm like, actually, yeah, yeah. you're a really lovely human being. So I, I think yeah. that's important to remember. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the B word, beer. I'd like to hear your take on it now because obviously over in America, there's still a big division about, oh, Christians shouldn't be drinking beer. You know, sure, sure. I live in Northern Ireland. It's like a mini Bible belt over here. You have the same sort of thing. And I keep saying yes. it's different. And they'll go, yes, it's different in England. So what about doing a major feature on Christians drinking beer in your magazine? Maybe you already have. What's your take on it? We did a feature on dry January, which is becoming a big thing. Dry January is where people give up alcohol for a month, often for for health reasons. Yeah. And we spoke to to somebody who'd done that and they did it for dry January and they carried on kind of for life afterwards. I mean, maybe I should have rephrased that, Martin, to say go out for a beer. Go out for a non-alcoholic beer with me. Um, (laughs) Serious, serious point. Serious point. I, if you're driving, I had to meet. I had to meet someone actually for work. Lunchtime meeting, and we happened to be meeting in a pub. Which again, if you're in America, different culture in the UK, where you know families go to pubs together, and you know there's yes. lots of people who aren't drunk in a pub, and it's a bit quite a different setting. It's not like going to a bar in the states. And anyway, it was lunchtime, and the person I was with ordered a non-alcoholic beer. But it was on tap. Oh. And I, th- I thought, oh, good idea. I'll, I'll go for that. And I'll tell you what, Martin, this non-alcoholic beer that I had on tap tasted better than normal beer. It was that good. I know what it was. It was the Guinness Zero Zero, wasn't it? It wasn't. It was actually Lucky Saint. Oh, I've, was it? I've heard very good things about Guinness as well. So I need to try that. I've not tried it yet. Yeah, Guinness Zero. Yes. I've done blind tastings yeah, with our yeah. next door neighbour. And we've had the Guinness Zero, the Draft Guinness, and his Guinness Nitro Surge, and another another variety. So is the Nitro Surge worth it? Because that's the one you can get in supermarkets, but it's like 20 quid, isn't it? Yeah, £12, I think. Or then, yes, it is, if you like Guinness. There is definitely a different taste between that one and your straightforward widgeted version, without a shadow of a doubt. Tastes sort of fresher. How they do it, I don't wow. know. But the Guinness Zero, yeah. And I'm not even sponsored by them. <laughs> we, we should be after this episode. <laughs> Any non-alcoholic beer companies would like to sponsor Martin's podcast, please get in touch. Please. Um, you know, in terms of Christians and alcohol and, and that whole debate, I always think of what it says in the New Testament about not causing each other to stumble. And this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, if I'm out with, and I've been in this situation before, if I'm out with a Christian and I know they don't drink and they have, you know, religious reasons for that, I am not going to order an alcoholic beer in front of them because I don't want to cause them an issue. So I think some yes. of it's just about understanding between us. But if you ask me kind of more theologically, I'm afraid I would have to argue that when Jesus turned water into wine, it was actually wine. It wasn't juice. Now, okay, fair enough. It may not have been as high alcohol wine as today, but it was still alcohol. It's still alcoholic wine. And when I kind of add up all the biblical verses, my take on it is relatively simple, which is just I don't think tasting or drinking alcohol is wrong. I do think getting drunk probably is. And there's plenty in the Bible about being sober-minded. And then I look culturally, and there's a move more towards non-alcoholic beers that taste great. And and I speak to a lot of Christians I admire who are choosing to go sober and give it up completely for all sorts of different reasons. And I want to support them as much as possible without then also making those who do still drink feel condemned. So I think it's quite a tricky one. But I guess the bottom line for me personally is just trying to cultivate an environment where you do you, I do me, and... As long as there's no absolute drunkenness involved, I think God's probably okay with all of it is kind of where I land. But that's not the most well thought out theological answer you'll ever hear. But that's sort of roughly where I'm operating. (laughs) That's very good. I'm just thinking now, 30 years ago, I was challenged by my church to actually give up drinking beer for a month. So I said, all right, then I will on one condition that, you know, we do it for charity. So we did. One of the elders joined with me as well. And this is at a time when I was going all around the country training people because of my job. You'd be off free drinks every every day, and I had to turn it down. And we raised money for Tear Fund. Fantastic. <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. So I have done my uh, dry January. Nice. Maybe I started it accidentally. <laughs> Who knows? I'd like to ask you another couple of questions, that's right, sir. In light of what you're sharing about you knowing your audience and stuff, one thing that I seem to come across now more and more on uh, social media, looking at it, is if people have got a tick box mentality for Christianity. It's like they might come in to listen to my podcast and immediately oh, he's talking about beer, oh, that's against my principles, and we'll immediately switch off, right, never to come back again. What have you seen regarding people's ideas of tick box mentality these days as Christians? Yeah, it's part of this whole kind of tribalism thing that we find particularly on 
online. And I think is is really sad. And I suppose that's a, that's a huge part of what we're trying to counteract, really, in, in having a publication and a brand that people can all relate to, even from different parts of the church. I suppose the way I put it is, ultimately what I'm about is trying to build a bit of Christian unity. Hmm. And I believe the way we build Christian unity is not by all agreeing on all the difficult issues, whether it's alcohol or anything else. The way that we're trying to build unity is explain why there are good Christians who might think slightly differently to you on some of the big issues. And we're not all going to agree. But my hope is that after reading an article, you might come away thinking, I don't agree with that person, but I now understand where they're coming from and why that Christian might hold a slightly different view to my own. And I think if we can just build a bit of understanding, that will lead to a little bit more unity. Now, that's not to say that there are not some issues where the kind of the really important issues where actually sometimes you do have to say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm off to the church down the road because this one's really important. Uh, and I'm yeah. not against that because there are some issues where that needs to be done. I think my sadness is where historically Christians have divided over some of the stuff that frankly was pretty unimportant, like, you know, pews or church chairs or you know whatever it is you think actually we could probably hold a different view on this and still be in the same church we don't have to leave over it and i think that's some of what we're seeing on, on social media where it just feels like suddenly every issue is a massive deal and it's just not true like some issues don't have to be a big deal and, and one of the things that i've had to learn over time which has been huge for me is just kind of picking your battles and learning where to engage and where not to engage and especially if you do use social media regularly, like it's a huge wisdom thing for all of us is to say, do I need to wade into this particular controversy in this particular way on this particular day? And often the answer is no. Um, and, and the wisdom is just in saying, actually, I don't need to talk about that. Or if I do, maybe I'll talk about it with them in person rather than being limited to 280 characters. <laughs> well, you mentioned various other social media platforms that have gone by the wayside. What's your take on Twitter? Here to stay, do you think, or to go? I have no idea. I have, I confess I'm not I'm not massively techy and, and following every piece of tech news about Elon Musk. Um, I understand he's a controversial figure, of course, and we, we have actually covered him in the magazine because he said some fascinating stuff about Jesus in the past. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm someone who uses it, as I say, I find it helpful professionally. Can't see it going anywhere, going anywhere too soon, but I'm, I'm not an expert. I think this stuff moves so quickly, doesn't it? I mean, the, the big topic at the moment is yeah. artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and then, of course, the latest, you see the Apple VR headset that came out the other day. Yes, $3,500. Yeah. So all of this stuff moves very quickly. I cannot say I know where it's all going. I'm not massively pessimistic about the whole thing. I'm not someone who sort of says, oh, down with all this sort of technology, this is all bad. I think it's probably more a case of us as Christians learning how best to engage in an ever-increasingly complicated world and engaging in a winsome and a wise way. You sounded almost like Father Ted then when he had the signboard saying down with this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I was channeling a little bit of that. <laughs> As you know, right at the very beginning, I talk about these podcasts to encourage and build up and everything else like that. And I mentioned the C word, conversation. Do you think we've lost the idea of conversing and chatting about things like you and I are doing at the moment? We're talking. So what do you think? I hope not. I actually think, Martin, that in all seriousness, podcasts is some of the answer to this. You know, we've talked a lot, haven't we, about the downsides of being limited by the character count on places like Twitter. And yeah. what I find amazing about podcasts is you can have these hour-long chats and believe it or not, I mean, I find this hard to believe, people actually listen to the whole thing. <laughs> you know, people actually engage in these in these long-form conversations. Mm. And when you have long-form conversations, there's a lot more nuance that you can get. And obviously, I say this as someone, I'm out of my comfort zone today because normally I'm the one asking the questions and interviewing people. And I, I host a, a podcast called The Profile where we where we do this. And it's wonderful that you can... What's the podcast called again, sir? Oh, it's called The Profile. Thank you, Martin, for asking. It's called The Profile. <laughs> and it's similar to this. It's just a back and forth conversation, but people engage with that. It gives you the space to be more nuanced yeah. and to be respectful and to dialogue and to even challenge each other on some of the, the difficult issues. So I have a lot of hope when it comes to the medium of podcasting to allow for that nuance that is needed uh, on these conversations, especially in the church around theology. I think it's a wonderful way of being exposed to a variety of opinions, which again, I know you do on your show by having all sorts of different Christians. Yeah. It's really healthy to expose yourself to different views from different Christians. It stops us getting caught in an echo chamber and it stops us thinking my one church has all the answers and everyone else is a heretic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody said earlier, and I wanted to pick up on it again, you, you know, you say you want to have an open understanding, you, you'll run stories. What particular story were you most probably going to say, no, it's not happened on my watch, but, you know, I'll let it go. And it changed you as a result. Wow. 
When you say not happy on my watch, well, like, like a story I didn't want to run initially? Yes, or? yeah, exactly that. Well, I tell you what, the latest issue is a really good example of that. So our assistant editor, Emma, who's fantastic, said to me, Sam, you realise this summer is 75 years since the Windrush generation mm. arrived in the UK. I think we need, to, we need to do something about this. And I'll be honest, it took some convincing. It really did. And I say that to my shame. But I just wasn't sure. I thought, is that a bit of a, a niche? In- I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I thought. I just wasn't convinced. Emma, thankfully, won the day and, and um, won the argument. And we've gone ahead and we've done a whole... We've actually done a whole issue that was edited by someone else, not me. So we've had a guest editor, Richard Reddy, who works with Churches Together, does a lot of work around racial reconciliation. And we've really tried to put together a magazine that explains, just being honest, the majority of our readership are, are white and not necessarily familiar with this subject. Try to do an issue that explains the history of these black British Christians coming over from the Caribbean, mm. invited by the British government here, experienced terrible racism in the established churches. Um, some of that led to some of the thriving black majority churches we see, particularly in, in the London area. Yep. Some of that happened because they were rejected by the institutional church. That's not the whole story, but that's part of the story. And we've tried to an issue that celebrates the incredible successes of the Windrush generation, their contribution to British life as a whole, mm-hmm. but especially the British church celebrates the success but it acknowledges the failures so we had had nikki gumbel writing about basically until the church repents of its racism against the windrush generation we will not see revival which is a very striking thing for someone like nikki gumbel to say and something that also builds for the future and is forward looking so i have to say i'm really proud of it but i can say i'm proud of it because it wasn't my idea it was my colleague who said we need to be doing this so, yeah, I mean, as we go through June, you know, Windrush Day is later in June, and you'll see a lot, I think, in the in the mainstream media about yeah, it because yeah. it's a significant moment. And, you know, we all want to be part of the answer to this, don't we? We acknowledge that there is still racial reconciliation work to be done in the UK. You know, it, it gives me great sadness that, that moments like George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, you know, if I could use this phrase, were, were surprisingly divisive in parts of the UK church, and that brings me great sadness I think we've got to find a way as a Christian community of uniting and showing more unity on these issues of racism. And I, and I hope this issue can play a small part in doing that. It is still a subject that's difficult to talk about for a lot of people. It has its own complexities. It has political implications. I'm not denying any of that, but I, I hope this issue can be part of the solution um, in building something positive and yeah. in bringing the church together. It was Martin Luther King, wasn't it, who said, that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And and we still see some of that in the UK. We still see some of that with, with churches that are divided along racial lines. So, um, yeah, it's on my heart that we bring some of that together. And I have to say, Martin, I'm, I'm honoured to be in a church in South London that is an incredible mix ethnically and an incredible amount of diversity. And we're honoured to have that in London because obviously there's parts of the of the country where it's perhaps harder to do that just because of the makeup of the local population. But I think where we can represent a bit of the kingdom of heaven on earth is every tribe, tongue, nation, language united before the throne worshiping God. And so where we can create those communities of different people, different backgrounds coming together, I think that says something beautiful. Very good. I was just going to ask you, actually, what the controversy surrounding what Nicky Gumbel said, but you've more or less told us it as well. What kind of feedback are you expecting to get, do you think, now that you know your audience really well? For, for this issue, mm. it's been very, very positive so far, which I'm really, really pleased about. We did a huge issue when Black when George Floyd died. We did a front cover that said "Black Lives Matter" to Jesus. That cover went viral online, and ninety five percent of the commentary was very positive. But there is always the five percent who were saying some pretty awful things. So, as I say, I, I think it's uh, it's still a bit of a tricky issue in the UK church. Um, but we want to we want to be part of this part of the solution and do all we can to promoting the things that God cares about, which is which is unity, which is reconciliation, which is every tribe, tongue, nation and language coming together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was frightening for me when you, you started this, saying it was the 75th anniversary, it seems only yesterday I was getting my Q magazine and it was celebrating the 50th anniversary. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I can remember vividly reading all about the windrush, the boat coming over, what was like on there. And obviously in the 60s, bringing through the reggae that came across, or scar as it was then, morphing into reggae. That was 25 years ago. Wow, it's frightening. Time flies. It does, isn't it? It does. Have you heard of the Duns movement in America? I can't say I have. It's something that spawned itself out of COVID. And more and more Christians are just saying, I'm done with going to church. So they're called the Duns. I'm done with this. Duns. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm just fed up with the way Christians treat me or whatever, or whatever the pastor's yep. saying. 
And what's encouraging in some ways is that they're not actually saying, I'm giving up on God, I'm giving up on Jesus. Then yeah. just not dealing with that. I thought maybe you'd like to do a, a feature on that one day. It reminds me of a piece I did on um, deconstruction, which is one of the most popular articles we've ever done. And look at the reasons why evangelicals in particular were deconstructing their faith and their theology. The Duns reminds me of the nuns. And I do mean N-O-N-E rather than N-U-N. <laughs> The nuns is the, those same folk in the UK and the US who are saying, I have no religion. But that's really helpful, I think, to talk about the nuns because that's slightly mm. different than saying, well, at one point did have a particular kind of faith and now may still have a... I, I don't know what you think. I think it's often may still have a faith, but is perhaps disillusioned with church. And that's the difference. Yes, that's how I take it. I think one of the most helpful things I've ever heard on this was from Rob Bell. And he pointed out that the beginning of Revelation is where Jesus addresses churches and he has some very strong words for a couple of churches, you know, that quite famously talks about, I want to spit you out of my mouth mm. to one church. And Rob Bell made the really helpful distinction to say that this is Jesus saying to a local church, you have done some awful things and you are getting it wrong. And I think that's a really key part of our theology is to be able to distinguish as many people have done and they're right to, to say what that church leader did, what that church did to me, that is not Jesus. Jesus stands against that. I think we go wrong where we equate the two. So where a church leader does something to us and we then think, well, that church is representing God. You think, well, no, we need to cast a distinction and say sometimes the church does terrible things. That's not that God has abandoned you or forgotten you or is against you. God loves you, but sometimes his people mess up. And I know that doesn't answer everything. And I know we as Christians long for the church to be a healthier place. But I think where we can have that distinction to say Christians will hurt you, the institution of the church is not perfect, but God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. You know, I hope that helps. It helped me when I heard Rob Bell say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to the very beginning, bring it up to now then, when I say beginning, I'm talking about the beginning of this interview. How much of a mouthpiece are you now, do you think, within the secular newspapers, whereby if they need a quote, they'll come to Sam Hales because he is the editor-in-chief of Christianity magazine. How many times do you get a phone call from whoever? Uh, it's not uh, it's not a core part of my job, but it is it is something that comes with the territory. So I've been on uh, BBC One on a Sunday morning a few times in the past um, to talk about what stories have been in the news and a, a kind of Christian response to them. And it's it's a big responsibility, obviously, to be in a position where you're potentially talking to a, a lot of people and a lot of people don't share your faith. So it's something I, I do uh, as carefully and prayerfully as I can and... Um, get nervous and get it wrong just like anyone else would yeah it's a privilege isn't it to be able to have that platform on occasion to talk to those outside the church and i think it's really important you know the last thing i want to do is be someone who gets very insular and knows lots of stuff about the church and and becomes so kind of irrelevant to the rest of the world it's the last thing i want to do i want to be someone who you know can have conversations about what's going on outside of the church as well as inside the church so those opportunities allow me to bridge that gap a little bit and you know, I think yeah. a lot of the time now, because we do live in an increasingly secular world, my my instinct is, actually, and this applies to all of us as Christians, if you can just be a good friend to someone who doesn't share your faith, that is evangelism. And, you know, 30 years ago, that would have been frowned upon. Yeah. Whereas now I think, no, just don't be a jerk. Be nice to people. That's huge. For a lot of people, that is huge. Because sadly, there is a perception you know, I think of people in my life who, for example, i got friends who are LGBT, for example, who don't share my faith. The message they have heard from the church has been so negative. Now, again, I know we can debate the, the rights and wrongs of all that, but the point is there are people walking around in London today right now who think Christians hate me. That's the perception. Might be right or wrong, but that is the perception. So me literally just being a nice person, being a friend to someone like that is evangelism because it's helping to change a perception that actually Christians are people who are called to love. Yes. And again, I'm not denying there's genuine theological debates beyond that. Of course there is. But actually just loving people well says a lot in today's society because sadly the perception of Christians has become so negative. You just being a good friend to another human being, that is a positive thing that you should not underestimate the importance of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're running rapidly out of time, I'm afraid, Sam. Listen, I've got only two more questions to go for you, if that's all right. First of all, looking on the, the media side, where do you see Premier Christianity going and what's going to be the future for Sam Hales, first of all? Uh, well, we're, we're really excited uh, about the future at Premier. You know, I'm in meetings and conversations about digital technology all the time. And yeah, we're a print magazine, but we've got a, a podcast and a website and 
we're excited about the opportunities of digital media and where that might go. And so, you know, we've got a growing audience internationally now. We've got people based in the US and South Africa and Europe who um, are subscribers to the digital magazine. You can get the magazine on, on an app on your phone. Um, and that's really exciting that, of course, we're a British magazine. We serve the UK church, but we have readers from all over the world. So we're excited to carry on, carry on doing that. And as for me, well, I'm expecting to become a dad again uh, this summer. A mm. uh, little boy is on the way. So that's going to take up a lot of my time and uh, looking forward to welcoming the new arrivals. So, Brilliant. yeah, I think, you know, if I look at the time I've been editing the mag so far, pretty much the first issue I did was when Billy Graham died. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's going to be the biggest issue I ever do. That's, that's a huge moment if you know anything who Billy Graham is. And then, of course, you fast forward a little bit and this thing called COVID arrived. And I thought, wow, this is going to be the most important issue I ever do, COVID. And then the next month, George Floyd passed away. And I thought, well, this is a big moment. So we did that. And and it's like things just sort of keep happening where you think this is a big issue. This is going to be the, yeah. you know, like the, the Queen passing away. I thought, well, that's now the biggest issue I ever do. And so I've got to be honest, it's an immense privilege to just be editing this publication at a time where so many significant things are happening. And it's it's on me and, and our incredible team to provide material that is encouraging, is positive, that builds the UK church up, that also asks the hard questions, but just feel like we're living through so many historical moments. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind of our job to to help the church be a voice into the world and into the culture and to not be too inward looking, but to always have an eye out there on the rest of the world and how we can share our faith in a, in a way that makes sense to people. So it's an exciting time to be alive and a wonderful time to be editing uh, a magazine that I have loved reading since my teens. Let's get some plugs going, if that's okay. If they want to get hold of you or they want to get hold of Premier Christianity, what can they do, good sir? That's so kind of you to ask. Thank you. So premierchristianity.com is our website. You'll find new articles going online every single day from a Christian perspective on all the usual social media places as Christianity Mag. And if you want to get in touch with me, please do. I would love that. Uh, you can reach me, sam.hales at premier.org.uk. I think that you've alluded to this as well. It's like working together on here. You know, why shouldn't I be able to say, give us a plug? Because, you know, at the end of the day, whether I'm doing it via podcast, whether you're doing it by uh, your magazine, you know, we're here for the glory of God at the end of the day. Amen. And, you know, we should be open, more open and work together. There's a thought. There's a thought. There's a controversial thought. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. We're stronger together than we are apart. And I, I think as well, there is an increasing necessity for it. You know, I think again, in the past, it's like, oh, should we work together? Whereas I talk to church leaders now and the question is quite different. It's no longer should we work together. It's no, we need to work together if we're going to survive. Yeah, because yeah. there is pressure. There's pressure on Christians, falling church attendance, increasing secular culture, that actually it's become a necessity. And that's a really good thing that actually a bit of pressure, I think, has the potential to bring us as Christians closer together, to be more collaborative working together. I'm all about that. And I love your heart for that, Martin. That's brilliant. Great. Thank you. Thank you. In our case of Off Grid Christianity magazine, which magazine? No, we're not doing that yet. What are we talking about? <laughs> uh, but as far as Off Grid Christianity is concerned, uh, we're hoping in the next few weeks to launch like a message board, you know, a chat room sort of thing as well, so that people who've listened to the podcast can then go on board and uh, discuss it. So that's our next venture in that. Final question then, good sir. And that is something that I do for every guest. And I ask you who your Christian hero is. And of course, on this one, uh, the Christian hero has to be dead and not in the Bible. And the reason why it has to be dead is just in case you choose someone's really well known at the moment. And in a couple of years time, we find out, oh, look at him or look at her. Yeah. So Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine, expectant father, who is your Christian hero, please? My Christian hero, and he's been on my mind just because if you've seen the news in the last couple of weeks, you'll know why is Tim Keller. Tim Keller passed away a few weeks ago, but in all the tributes, some of which I've obviously had the pleasure of editing and publishing, in all the tributes, it's just reminded me of what an outstanding Christian leader he was because he not only was an amazing teacher and pastor, he was someone who always had one eye on the rest of the world and communicated the Christian faith in a way that the secular and the skeptic minded person could understand and you know i've read i haven't actually read all of his books but since he's passed away and i've read all these tributes it's just made me think i need to read his other books as well he, he's left such an incredible catalog of teaching that i've found enormously helpful and um, we interviewed him shortly before he passed away one of the last interviews he gave and he said 
I would not want to go back to the prayer life I had before cancer, which was a really remarkable thing for him to say, you know, terminal cancer, very serious situation. But to say, while he wouldn't have chosen that suffering, it dramatically changed his relationship with God. Uh, and so it was a really, really inspiring interview. But I just think he had this amazing way of being so generous and gracious to those he disagreed mm. with. He had very strong and particular con theological convictions, but he held them in such a way that allowed him to engage with other Christians who disagree with him, and, and especially with, with atheists and the skeptics that he was reaching, particularly in New York City. So, yeah, Tim Keller, I think um, I would heartily recommend pretty much anything he's ever written. And um, he's someone who I think will be greatly missed, in particular for the way he wisely and, and winsomely engaged with those he disagreed with. But you said something there that he was able to embrace and discuss. From what I remember of Tim Keller, and there's just one thing, that he was a cessationalist. I'm right in saying, aren't I? A cessationist. Yes, I think you're right that he may well have ticked that box. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't stop you from reading it. It didn't stop other people from reading his publications or whatever. And no doubt he yeah. would have talked in love and in grace. And yes. I always remember uh, a very well-known evangelist who believed in once saved, always saved. No, right, at the time. And he wrote a couple of famous books. And I always remember as he was walking back through the audience, me, a young Christian of about oh, six, seven months, I changed him. And he took time. He took absolute time to listen to me, explain, and then moved on. And then when I went to Christian Radio, I had the privilege of uh, interviewing him again over the phone and he very kindly sent me a book you know that he'd written as well so yes there are people like that that you know if you don't agree well ask them but then if you've been asked that question show grace and respond back as well yeah absolutely a gracious approach counts for so much i think yeah um and is so is so important yeah sam i'm gonna let you go and now play with your daughter or make a cup of tea or whatever thank you so much for joining us today i've really enjoyed listening to your wise words it's been great fun cheers thank you so much thank you Thank you. Cheers. God bless.